Okay, Ntate Homu, you are taking us to South Africa today on our I Am A Country segment. Can you locate South Africa for us geographically? Where is it? Well, <laughs> that's a nice one. Well, South Africa, basically, for those who want to know us, what South Africa is, um, the name, it just gives away its geographical location. It's on the southern tip of um, Africa. But again, not even southern tip, southern end of Africa. But then to give you a much better perspective of what it is, South Africa is a country that's bordered by, I would say, that Mozambique to the east, uh, to the north you've got uh, Zimbabwe, Again, you have to the north, you've got Botswana. And again, to the north, you have got Namibia. Uh, now, the country is surrounded in the east, west, and you can also say in the south, it tapers by the sea, whereas, whereby you've got the Indian Ocean to the east, and to the west, you've got the Atlantic Ocean. That is where South Africa is, and that's where it's located, basically, on the globe. Mm. Now, in, when you compare it in terms of population to its neighboring countries like Botswana and Lesotho, we have got by far the biggest population. Why is this the case? Why are we so so fifty six million um, people living in South Africa? Well, um, well, you cannot compare South Africa. Of course, I forgot uh, to the east again, and uh, you've got Swaziland, which I forgot, and again it completely mm-hmm. surrounds Lesotho. Now. Um, well, South Africa has got a population of 56 million, as you said, compared to the other two countries. But then the other two countries, basically, they are small. And again, when it uh, comes to Lesotho, it has got its other problem of settlement. Uh, it's mountainous. Now, again, when you look at South Africa geographically, uh, before you get even to the demographics, we could got to look at it also climatically. Um when you look at it climatically, South Africa basically it's a can, it's a diverse country. Uh, you've got the eastern uh, shoreline or the eastern area of South Africa. Mm. These areas they are actually dominated by a mountain range which they call the Drakenberg, but basically Kimaluti or Ulundi, mm. that is the traditional name of the place. Now, um, again, you find that these areas they've got the highest uh, rainfall of South Africa. They're experiencing rainfall of over, of about, of about between 1,000 to 1,200 millimeters of rain per annum. But then as you get into the interior of the country, the rainfall keeps on dropping. Whereas on the average, when you come to certain areas of the Transvaal, the uh, former Transvaal, sorry, uh, the rainfall gets to about 700 millilit- millimeters to 500 millimeters and when you get further west into the Karoo mm. and further south where the rainfall really drops now this has got its ramifications in many things now one thing when you talk about the population I'll come to that you find again that the areas where you've got the heavy rainfall are the most populated areas and as you go inward, the population gets thinner and thinner. Mm. Eventually, it gets very thin in the Karoo, which basically is a semi-desert. Yeah. Now, the important thing about human, um, about human settlement patterns is this that from time immemorial, humans settle where life or sustenance of life is more guaranteed. And the thing that guarantees life is rainfall. 
especially in the age where agriculture was developed. Yes. Yeah, but even in the age of the hunter-gatherers, uh, where there's more rainfall, there was more vegetation, there was more wildlife, and the people, the settlement would be more. So you find also in the Drakensberg, in the mountains of KZN and, East, and Eastern Cape, you find that there you've got the highest concentration of uh, Bushman paintings showing that the uh, population of uh, the Sun people was very high. But then coming to the same point, again, you see that with settlement, which is dependent upon rain, but it's also dependent upon the crop of sustenance. Now, that's a very important thing that people don't understand is this that um, you find that the eastern shoreline, uh, it was it was an area which was um, longer settled mm-hmm. by a sedentary people. People were not hunter gatherers. Okay. Yeah, and with that sedentary people, uh, even even with um, pastoralists, <coughs> with that you find that uh, those people they had to have a crop of sustenance, and in those days it was idumbe, uh, madumbe, uh, which are basically it's a it's a root crop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the crop of sustenance, and again you find that the mode of settlement it was along river Rhine. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that is a pattern right up to southern Somalia, and that's a eastern, eastern African mode of settlement. The settlements were along uh, river lines, and then the interior. It took a long time for the interior to be settled, but when it settled, it was settled when there was a, the economic culture of the place changed. You find that the people who came and started settling being sedentary or, or, or pastoral or semi-pastoral, they were people who came in with sorghum, amabele. Mm. Yeah. Now, amabele is a magic crop of Africa. It originated in Africa, and by 5000 BC, it had actually moved as far away as Korea. But where it originates from, it originates from the Sahel. But that's the crop which actually enabled Africans to settle in the dry areas and the savannah areas, which were experiencing about 30 days of rainfall. And you find that those are the people of the interior. And these people of the interior also, they came with a wonderful thing. They also came with cattle. Yes. Those those are the cattle people. And from there, and that has been proven archaeologically, cattle moved to the eastern seaboard. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The oldest remain of cattle in Botswana and also in the... In the former Transvaal, it goes up to about 400. I think Botswana goes to about 400 AD to 500 AD in in in, in uh, the so-called former mm. Transvaal. Mm. So now that is a settlement pattern. And again, you find that people tended to go to areas of high rainfall. So that's why you find that the eastern seaboard, KZN, and um, eastern Cape, mm. the population density is very high. Now, how do we, because you're talking about settlement pattern, which is quite important. Mm. How do we then, how did we then become so diverse and break into Bavenda, break into Kosas and um, Zulus? We've got so many different cultures in South Africa and languages. Yeah, that is fine. But South Africa does not have many languages or cultural uh, uh, norms. I mean, look at a country like Tanzania, which is about half the size of Tanz- of South Africa. Or could say, yeah, it's about half or three quarters. Yeah, they've got about 200 uh, ethnic groups, or two, say two, yeah, 200 ethnic groups and tribes. Mm. So that's basically South Africa. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't talk much about South Africa. Mm. But again, in South Africa, if you look at the linguistic groups as we're talking about, and the cultural group, and where they are found, it's very interesting because uh, this is a very good place to actually do a study on um, 
people and um, also do research on modes of um, of of people mixing mm. yeah um, and that and what you get it from now that they're using they're using linguistics more than anything else and of course they've got genetics now but linguistics is the most interesting thing now talking coming to what you are really asking is this that with all these groups basically you've got two major groups yeah I can say three major groups yeah okay but I would say okay I would call it let's say four major groups mm. I'll, to, I'll take the first one which I'll take it will be the Tsonga that's a separate linguistic group and it's unique and then with the Tsonga I'll take the Venda mm. and then from the Venda I'll take the Sutu Tswana and then I'll take the Nguni so these are the four big uh, groups mm. and again you've got the Tswa I mean the 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 the, the, the sun and the and the Hoi. Now these are very important groups, although those languages are threatened and they've almost disappeared, but they've added themselves to the other languages. Mm. Now the way it is, you find that the Nguni group is actually on the eastern seaboard. Now the Nguni group is interesting because linguistically they are what they are. Let's look at take it linguistically, but when you look at it further linguistically, you find that they have a lot of borrowed terms, mm. which you find that they've been borrowed from this other linguistic group, or uh, Sesotho, and also from the Sun. Now, Sotho words within uh, the Nguni languages, they are very, they, you, you can discern them very easily. It is terms like uh, Nkomo, uh, Nkosi, Ntabia, mm. uh, yeah. Now you find that in Sotho, in these two groups, um, you can take any other language. These are the techniques which being used by linguists. Yeah, people like uh, Erhard, um, Christopher Erhard. You find that uh, a borrowed term, when it's been taken to another linguistic group, it has got to be accommodated in the grammar and the phonetics. And for that matter, it changes. And the changes of words like Nkosi, uh, Nkosi, uh, Nkomo, is this that they've added the Nguni prefix. Now, when you look at it from where it came from, that will give you the direction of borrowing. Mm. It comes from Homu and then from Hosi. Yes. Yeah? Yes. Now, when they take it, you cannot get from Nkosi to Hosi. Yeah? From Hosi, when he went there, it actually sort of was accommodated. Mm. But again, it's vice versa because if you look at Southern Sutu, Southern Sutu, it's uh, where there are the borderlines between the Nguni and the Sutu Tswana people. They've also got a lot of Nguni borrowed terms within Sisutu. Mm. Yeah. And also they've actually been also changed. Yeah. To actually to be accommodated. Yeah. To be accommodated in the Sutu language. Mm. And again you find that Sisutu is a very interesting language. Okay, let's take the Nguni. The Nguni is a very interesting language because everybody knows they've got the sun clicks. And the sun are, clicks are numerous. Now that shows that those languages developed from a symbiotic coexistence. That's a thing that people do not know. Uh, people tend to look at the interaction between the this uh, prim uh, primordial people as being very hostile. No, they're mm. not. They're symbiotic, interrelationship, and one group being absorbed in another. So the cliques basically it's an absorption of uh, the sun, and that has been proven genetically because all um, Guni people they've all got uh, sun 
genetic admixing them. Yes. Now, when it comes to the suit, it's also very interesting. People say that these people, are, uh, they don't have any sun admixture. Well, they do have them. But, I mean, the suit have got more hoi. Now, if you look at the Sutu language, you find terms like Kitswana Tseu Tsehe Tsaiting. That is a hoi thing there. Or the Tsitsiman. That is a hoi. Utsuba. Tsie. Those are not Bantu terms. Those are directly hoi terms. And the Sutu Tswana, they actually have got a lot of hoi admixture rather than sun admixture. So that's the interesting thing. And again, you find that the Sutus and the agriculturists never ventured far as far as the Western Cape. That was because, again, with the crop, which allowed them to come with this low rainfall area, those, the sorghum, those crops could not exist or could not survive on winter rain, where the Western Cape and the, and, and, and the Karoo, major part of the Karoo, mm-hmm. it experiences winter rain. The t- that time, the temperatures are too cold for sorghum to survive. So unlike the saying that, oh, no, the, they push the sun people to the dry areas. No, is this that the intermixing could not take place because the yeah. people could not coexist. But they did coexist, the pastoralists, the pastoralist Sotos. Mm. And again, there was a very big interaction between the Western Cape and the Basut, whom the Western Capers, before coming of the white men, they used to call them Piljuangs. Mm. Yeah, when the when the white men came to Cape Town, they found that the Hoi and the Sun people they used to have iron tools, and then but they were not metal workers. When they asked them where they got them, they said these were trade tools. They got them from the Piljuangs. So eventually, when the white men got up to the high felt area, these two things, they got to the Piljuangs, and they found that they were Tswana blacksmiths. And the thing the piljuang comes from the thing that the first thing they say upilajuang. <laughs> <laughs> so that is that very well said by uh, Isaac Scapera in his yes. books on the sun. Yeah. So yeah. that's a history that South Africans don't know about themselves. Mm. Yeah. Let's let's go to you know some of the natural resources that South Africa has, and you know how are these resources being utilized to equip people or to empower the mm. economy. Uh, so to say, mm-hmm. but are they working in favor of the country that they are coming from? Well, the resources have also got a history. Yeah, because um, you look at the Iron Age, I mean, the South African um, so called Bantu people, the, the term the Iron Age people, and the South African Iron Age it goes back to 400, but they keep on pushing it back <laughs> as time goes on. They've mm. got more archaeological diggings. I mean, the earliest um, source of iron, I think it's in um, Zanin area. And then another very early uh, Iron Age site is in Pretoria, yeah, near the big uh, dam there. Mm. There you've got uh, Iron Age workings of um, Boom Boom, I think it is about uh, 700 AD, 500 to 700 AD, yeah. Unfortunately, these things used to be available on the internet, but now I've tried to download them. They're no longer there. Somebody's trying to hide this information. Information. Yeah. But then again, another wonderful thing, the thing that did not want it to be seen, is this, uh, the iron workings of uh, Pretoria, yeah, the Hattabis Dam area, yeah, and and that's the old iron workings of the Mahalis. You get them all over the Mahalis. Is that this iron, these are resources, of course, that um, they also had copper workings. Now, they get the copper working from the slag, which is left behind. Mm. And they also get to know what about it from the middens. The middens are the rubbish pits. 
right? They come to the meetings and then they find that the remains of sorghum and all crops, type of um, uh, relishes, the meats, uh, the bones, yeah. Yes. But now coming with the resources, we find that um, those people, they also were copper working people. But then from the slag of the copper, the copper was identified that it came from Tabazimi, not from the Pretoria area. Yeah. So it shows that these people had a long distance trade to the uh, in the in, in the country. Mm. Now that has been baffling people as how they could do it because you cannot just they didn't bring the copper there they brought it as all. But the thing that they forget was this that the Tswana people the cattle people of South Africa basically they also had drought animals where they had well trained cows which could actually carry loads on the back, and they used to do it for long distance. That thing that was there for a long time. Mm. And they also had riding cows. Uh, that thing there was also taken up by the hoi. Apparently, people say that the hoi came, the cattle came with the hoi, but archaeology has proven that no, the hoi came with um, the sheep, okay. which is basically African. Mm. And one thing beautiful about the hoi people is this, that they met his, their house form. It is actually Cushitic. It's the same as the Somalis. Yeah. So that, there's a lot of research that needs to be done. Mm. But now with the resources, in all resources, the history of resources where they came to do the mining, they found that, and that's copper and iron, they found that there were ancient workings. That uh, the workings going back to 700 AD, yeah. 500 yeah. AD, yeah, they'd all been worked. But then as far as the resources and how they're used, basically it's unfair. Because um, if you find the Tswanas, uh, according to uh, Isaac Scapera, the Tswanas were very big um, ironsmiths. Mm. And mm. that was their one of the biggest trades. They had big cities of about twenty to 30,000 people. Yeah? And uh, one of the biggest um, preoccupation was actually producing trade goods. And the trade goods that they used to produce were iron goods, mm. hose and things like that. Because iron ore was not available all over the country. And they used to trade with these items in a long distant way. So Tswanas were known to be ironsmith. But with the colonialism, all that was broken down and it was made illegal for people to work with iron or even to mine. Yeah. So you find that the people dispossessed from a form of existence. Mm -hmm. And that has been the pattern right up to this day where yes. you find that the mining rights, they've been taken over by the state and the state issues them to people who apply. And these are people who are not even native to the area where the minings are. Yeah. So basically, even the laws yeah of the time the colonial laws they were there to advantage the mm. colonialists mm. but we have actually come to this present day with the same laws and the same attitude like you find the platinum belt the platinum belt is in an area where the tribes of um, transvaal yeah they actually had to go and beg to get land and those land they were sold land they did not get it free they had to buy the land like our grandmother's area of Hebron, they bought the land for 300 pounds sterling, sure. which they paid in cash. And it was a family of uh, 30 people. <coughs> it was a family of 30 people. This is my grandmother's family being one of them. Mm. Yeah, basically, they came from uh, Betani, Kibakwena. Yeah. Bakwena. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yes. but then they bought the place, that 35 bought the place for 30 pounds sterling. But that was happened throughout mm. the the Transvaal, where mm. families and where people had to buy the land and they had to come and go and work in gold mines, work for Boer farms. Mm. But then the Africana, the Boer regimes of that time, the Transvaal government, they sold them land, they gave them land, which was 
very rocky, which could not sustain very heavy uh, agricultural activity. This was to make sure that these people don't come up and they be depend upon the Boer farms mm. to work. But then today it has transpired that these rocky areas, they're the outcrops of the platinum. Yeah, that's where the platinum belt is. That's and they're all mostly on this traditional communal land which mm. was bought. But then the people, they do not, are not being given the can mineral rights. Can they access rights. it? They can access it because it's on their land. But mm. they do not, they're not being given the mineral rights. The mineral rights now, when it comes under the present situation of B, are being given to politically uh, connected people. And most of mm. them come from regions outside that area. Mm. And those mm. people are told that they are going to get advantages to work and whatnot, but that thing does not take place. Mm. So you find that the colonial mentality in mining the resources, it is skewed and is still going on. Mm. And that is the unfairness of the resource division of South Africa. Yeah, yeah. It's even worse in uh, Western Cape where the major resource is the land itself. I mean, in Western Cape and the Karoo, it's unfortunate because the, it was cattle, but then uh, the, the cattle was taken over by force. But one thing people do not want to know is this, that um, in Western Cape, uh, the people actually hunted uh, for game. People actually hunted as animals. I mean, the sun mm. disappeared, not because of measles or what, because, uh, as they say, diseases, <coughs> white man diseases, which is false. Because mm. there are no white man diseases, they're just diseases, they're and just, the mm. and the immune system of the human being is the same. Mm. They would have developed uh, immunity to those diseases. It is just that that they were used to be hunted. Uh, the first um, what do you call them? The first uh, commanders which were said that they were said that to come and actually get slaves from mm. the sun and hunt down and kill. Yeah, the first thing was in uh, Stellenbosch area. That's when the first command was recorded. But it became a known thing until when the British came in. It continued, but they actually formalized it. It was like real British. That now to go and hunt a son, you have to get a license. So the British government, uh, the Cape government of the British, used to use licenses to hunt uh, the son people. Sure. And the last license was issued out in, in 1936. My mother was born in 1920. In 1936, mm. was still issuing out licenses to hunt people like animals. Yeah. The same thing as it was taking place. But this is a history that people do not <coughs> want <coughs> to, to hear. Be, you know, to hear. Yes. But again, uh, the people of Western Cape, they've been the most brutalized people in South Africa. Mm. Mm. <coughs> <coughs> Lastly, in Datokomo. Mm. In, you know, in short, I know it's, it's hard to summarize the political situation mm. in South Africa, mm. but we are a democratic country. Um, what is our governance structure like in South Africa? <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful. We are democratic and they say that you've got the best um, constitution in the world. But basically, um, with our democratic uh, dispensation, it was actually... Uh, it was actually uh, an attempt to come and accommodate the, the systems that were there. And the bigger system, the dominant system, was the settler colonial. Mm. Yeah. So basically it has been accommodated into the governance structure in saying that uh, all settler rights have been enshrined in the constitution, all the dispossessions and everything else. Mm. But again now to looking at the majority of the black population, um, it was conceived to be a danger. So what happened was this, that they had to liberalize the whole thing to put Bill of Rights, which would actually stop so-called this big mass from actually dominating the political scene. Mm. 
Mm. As we can see now that basically um, the governance structure, the three pillars of governance, uh, the executive, the, 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 the executive, uh, the judiciary, and also the parliament or the legislature, you know, they are there, but uh, they've got a lot of checks and balances, yeah, to a point now that the executive basically has been chastised by the so-called judiciary mm. through the constitution. But it is good in a way that with the governments that there's no one group which can actually, at least the executive cannot come to be too powerful and to dominate. Mm. Yeah. But again, you find that people are saying that the, well, this is debatable, but people are saying that basically that the judiciary of South Africa, it is uh, inquisitorial. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. like the inquisitor of um, the early ages of, uh, before the Enlightenment, Middle Ages. These were, this was the church whereby it made sure and it looked after the church's domin domination whereby you could be hauled before an inquisitor uh, just to say that you disagree with the tenets of the church of Christianity or of the Pope. Yes. Yeah, it's like the person who first said that uh, in the solar system, the sun is a central object. And I think the person who said that he was actually killed for, blas uh, for blasphemy. And there's another, I think it was Michelangelo, he actually went or Galileo, he actually went and changed. He says, no, 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 no. I mean to say that uh, the sun and everything revolves around the earth. Yeah, but they, that was <coughs> the inquisitor. So the, our judiciary tend to be an inquisitor to try to maintain the status quo. Mm. So this is going to actually give a lot of problems. The governance is good, whereby they've got democracy and they've got checks against mm. the big um, institutional state. But again, people are questioning it because they're saying that uh, the whole idea of human rights is very good. But again, with human rights, a human being is a social being. Now, where are the social norms, mm. especially mm. the social moral norms? They're not looked after. And I think that's going to become a clash in the future. But it won't be a clash that people are going to fight, but it'll be a clash at the intellectual level. Mm. One uh, outlook has got to come up and dominate, but mm. that's the thing for the future. But the governance, I think it is quite good. Although it has weakened the executive, the executive cannot do its work as it's supposed to do. Mm. Yeah, mm. things like uh, the <coughs> rolling out of the HIV's uh, tablet, the antiviral. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, now that came from the court ruling, but then you find that the executive has got a job of actually disposing resources to where they see that they're most needed. The facilities. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's the means. Yeah. So you just not say because people are dying there, you've got to give them what they, to get the resources there. So people are asking now, why don't they roll out um, kidney machines? Yeah, people are dying of uh, kidney, kidney failures in the rural mm. areas. Now that again, under the uh, president, which has been set for the <laughs> HIV tabs, mm. people should be getting kidney machines in their homes, but that is not there. They say no, we can't afford it. It's the same people who actually fought for rolling out of the tablets who are saying they were giving excuses why people cannot access kidney machines. Mm. So that's a contradiction in yes. the whole thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ndato Homo, for taking us to South Africa. You've definitely enlightened me. Um, and it's, 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 it's a really hitch, rich history that most people are not exposed to. Or we don't expose ourselves to it, I suppose, as well.